Hi there, I'm Deb Crow, and I want to welcome you to season four of Imperfect, the heart-centered leadership podcast. This is a podcast where we connect, learn, and laugh together with authentic and courageous leaders from all over the globe. You will learn from leaders you haven't even met yet. You will gain new tools to add to your leadership toolkit because leadership belongs to all of us. It is not measured by stature or title. So please pull up a chair and listen in. This is the Imperfect Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. Welcome back to Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. I know that I say this quite frequently on the show and, and pretty much almost every week because I'm always in awe of people that find the show or are referred to the show. So today I'm excited to have a guest. I'm going to say she's in the same space as me. I think she is. Her name is Julie Noonan. So Julie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Deb. I really appreciate it. Well, we, we've got some alignment. We are both in the executive coaching space. You have spent 30 years. Uh, I join you in that. We were very young when we started. Yes. And I'm excited to get into such a great conversation, but have changed things up a little bit for season three. And would you just give our listeners, who we now have in 65 countries, and, and we boast with a lot of pride and happiness that we've got such uh, a large geographic listenership. Tell our listenership a little bit about Julie Noonan. Okay. Well, I have been in business um, in my own company for three years now because I got laid off during COVID when I was 57 years old. And that was quite a scary moment, obviously, in my career. I had been up until that point in senior level positions I had been uh, in consulting as well as internal to companies. I've worked in HR, IT, uh, but my specialty is really change management and organization development. I have done a lot with looking at human behavior in systems, like I look at English literature, which is my major. All that a good novel is, is looking at people in a system and how they react with each other. And so I use what I learned from that discipline um, over time to kind of take a look at humans in, in stress in organizations and figure out ways to help them. Well, I'll tell you what I love the most about your introduction is the transparency and authenticity of the outcome that the pandemic left you with. You know, 57, we're going to, one of my questions is going to definitely be around ageism. And I did not know that about you before we met today. And it's really becoming its own pandemic. So I'm really excited, but I, I'm to talk about that, but I'm more excited that you're out on your own and it's been three years and you're thriving. That's, that's the best part of this conversation. So my first leadership question is, you view and talk about yourself, about a belief that there's so much beauty in your words, the messiness of humans. So unpack that a little bit from the woman who was let go three years ago and the messiness that you've had exposure to now looking through a lens of your own company. What does that mean? Uh, to me, that means... Acknowledging and accepting that 
all humans are fallible, that we all have emotion, that emotion is part of our makeup, it's part of our lives. And when we as organizations deny emotion or deny the human side of being human and expect everyone to have the same viewpoint on life or everyone to to manage a crisis the same way or everyone to toe the line, if you will, or say yes, then we diminish our ability as organizations to be innovative, creative, and really place where anyone from a diversity perspective can be valued. And so to me, the messier, the better. The more people we have that have differing viewpoints, the more people we have that can have a good, solid debate or um, a good, solid argument, <laughs> if you will, about any given point, the better off the outcome is going to be. Because we don't assume. As soon as we assume that everyone is is thinking the same way we are, we become our own worst enemies, I believe. And what I love about that is that truly is the foundation of a healthy, vital, thriving culture when you have a team and an organization at large where they feel comfortable in a space to do that. What what a beautiful example. Now, my second question has permanent residency on the show. We've had a lot of laughter from this question and hence the name of the show. What imperfections does Julie bring to her heart-centered leadership? Probably my biggest imperfection and my biggest saboteur, if you will, is my need for control. I bring in uh, a very strong personality. Uh, I believe in candor. I believe in telling the truth as from my perspective and allowing others to tell the truth from their perspective. Um, I absolutely hate sugarcoating. Absolutely despise sugarcoating and toxic positivity. So I think sometimes pushing back against that can Pushing back against the positivity can get me into trouble. <laughs> it, it does. But, you know, I think about your answer to the first question and I'm with you. I believe there's enough space for candor, humor. I'm not a sugar coater as well. So you, you've got a sister right here in that. <laughs> and, and it can be delivered in a heart-centered way. Absolutely. It doesn't. Speaking out and speaking truth doesn't mean that you are out to hurt someone or that um, that your truth is a universal truth. It just means putting yourself out there and being vulnerable to other people saying what their truth is so that all of the truths can come together to form the group truth, <laughs> if you will. How are we going to look at the situation all together that we can all be comfortable with, or at least, if not be comfortable, be challenged by to make it better. You know, and it's so interesting and it's going to lead nicely into my next question. There's always a great segue when this happens. You talked about being laid off at 57. Mm -hmm. I'm turning 57 in May. For people to say there's a nuance for ageism, let, let's bring the candor and the humor for this question. The challenges that the boomers are facing in 
the last years of their workforce. I was so happy you wanted to talk about this. And and now not only are you prepared for it, you've had a dress rehearsal and executed your own change management for your own organizational development, and you had nothing to do with it. So I think this is such a great question to talk to someone who's done it. And again, such a serendipitous moment because I didn't know that about you and I already had this question (laughs) proposed. So I always love alignment when it happens on the show. From your standpoint, from what you did up until you were let go and what you've witnessed over the three years, share with us your view, your vantage point of ageism and the challenges that boomers are facing because I'm the year after the boomers. So I'm the Gen Xer, but I'm I'm sitting right on that border. So certainly feel that I have an influx and a participation, but I'm keen to hear what is your lens? What is your vantage point? You've experienced this. You're now working with clients. What what words of wisdom? And again, bring on the full unsugarcoating <laughs> candor and humor because I I love that you're going to answer this really from a probably a visceral point of view, if I can say that. Absolutely. When I was laid when I was laid off, obviously I immediately started sending out resumes for positions that, frankly, five or six years ago, you know, early fifties. I would have at least had an interview for, if if not, you know, straight out, just recruited for. Um, the recruiting, the direct recruiting to me dried up at about 55. And then when I was laid off, all of a sudden, now no one was returning my calls because all of a sudden I was three years from 60. I was 10 years from retirement, or at least they thought I was. And as I talk to um, my clients, who a lot of them are boomers, and I do focus on the boomer population, actually, and I've uh, written an article about the boomers and what their concerns are, what I've found is that um, their self-confidence obviously takes a hit when some big life changes, when they have plotted out in their head, okay, I've got nine more years or I've got five more years. And then I can make a choice to do something else. Nine times out of 10, when boomers say retirement, at least the younger boomers, they're not really talking about retirement in the, in the old way, meaning I retire from a company and now I go play golf full time. What they really mean is I retire from a company perhaps, but then I become an advisor or I become a board member or I, you know, start a nonprofit, or I have a hobby that I've always wanted to build a business around. Most of the boomers that I know, whether or not it's from a financial perspective, aren't ready to stop. Um, they're, they're actually afraid to stop, frankly, and they don't want to stop. And the companies that realize that there is just so much richness still available in that population just because technology maybe leapfrogged some of us or it takes us longer to to um, convert to some of the newer technologies does not mean that we're adverse to them. We are, um, you know, a negative Nelly in the room, but we do bring in a level of been there, done that, test the waters, risk assessment, 
we bring that level of, I don't want to say slow caution, but quick risk assessment that only comes with experience. And it was very disheartening for me to feel useless at 57 years old when, frankly, I was at the top of my game, absolute top of my game. And so my personal journey was, (laughs) if I could just say with some candor and humor, screw it, (laughs) I'm doing my own thing. I'm not working for anyone else anymore. I'm going to be my own boss. I'm going to create my own company culture. I'm going to bring in subcontractors that I want to work with and who are incredibly, incredibly brilliant. And where I'm going to do amazing things. And as soon as that, as soon as I made that decision and changed my mind and decided to go on this journey, I was fired up again. And I want that to happen for all of the boomers and all of the folks who are feeling like that they've aged out of being useful or valuable because they haven't. And that's where my ageism banner gets waved because we talk about a lot about um, lack of workforce. Well, why are you getting, (laughs) why are you getting rid of your absolute most senior level people when you could offer them half-time, part-time, you could offer them an advisory role you could give them a special project that you just need some some senior chops around. There are so many things that organizations could be doing to engage the um, the aging population in a way that they want to be engaged. So much to just unpack here. I, my little <laughs> pen was going because I, I didn't want to forget a few things. First of all, there's so many great documentaries coming out on ageism. I opened this, I, I, I opened or ended season two. I can't remember because I've interviewed so many people with Chip Conley. Okay. He has termed and coined the phrase modern elder. It starts at age 45. Yeah. And, you know, it's almost like we need to reframe not only a mindset, but some of the vocabulary attached to aging. So senior citizen, modern elder. It's like you said, there's so many decades of practical experience and wisdom. Mm-hmm. And we have all these jobs and all this unemployment. I Like, look at your U.S. president. I'm in Canada. And I mean, they're already saying he should run again. He's old. He's this. He's that. It's, it's almost a bias. Yes, I'm going to say it. And I come from the med rehab world. And I will tell you, because you made such a good point. A lot of us don't want to stop because we're enjoying what we're doing. Mm-hmm. So in Canada, I'll give you a great example, because this is so perfect. <laughs> At 65, you retire. You can get your Canada pension plan. You can get your old age security from the government. The government was not forthright in their planning or thought leadership. They've now bumped that. So if you were born in, I forget the year off the top of my head. So I'm born in 66. I now have to wait till I'm 67. Same here. And it's like, are you kidding me? (laughs) The last century is the last century 
of youth. Mm -hmm. So when you look at the bandwidth from a geographic perspective, modern elders are the dominant demographic. Yep. Modern elders are the ones with the schooling, the experience, the practical application. And it's very interesting because we have this influx of younger leaders getting to the C-suite than we've ever seen before. Mm -hmm. And they come with different tools, different techniques. And it's funny because Chip Conley was approached by the three young brainchilds that came up with Airbnb. And he said, why do you want me? And they said, because you have the experience, the innovation and the thought leadership that we don't have. And then what was beautiful was he said, working with the younger generation, thought leadership, entrepreneurship, they taught me that my wisdom was great, but I forgot to bring my curiosity as I was growing. So I think there's such an opportunity for this recipe of coming together and sharing and mentoring. We can uh -huh. learn from them. They can learn from us. Exactly. I, I, I think it's a much, much bigger thing. We could do a whole show on that, but I'm, I'm happy to hear that you are doing your own thing, working on, you know, you talked about reverse mentoring, you talked about generations in the workplace. And why can't we be a knowledge sharing culture? Wouldn't it be beautiful if the whole world, world adapted that mind, that mindset? Exactly. And it is a mindset. We can build tools all day long. And I, I actually am working with a client right now to build a knowledge management center of excellence because they want to increase the knowledge sharing culture in their organization. And, <clears throat> you know, part of, a big portion of what I'm doing on that particular project isn't building, you know, methodologies for knowledge management or tools or training to train them or any of that. It's really, truly a mind, a mind shift. It's stopping Allowing time within a day to, to have people stop and think, is there anything I'm doing here that would be good to share with my, with my colleagues, with my leaders? Did I discover a more effective way to get something completed? Did I, did I get a, a, an article that absolutely shone a light on a problem that we're having? And can I share that and what, what it means, you know, to the situation that we're in? We, we don't really spend a whole lot of time allowing people the time to reflect on what they're doing and, and what of it is valuable to spread around like peanut butter, <laughs> you know. And um, the reverse mentoring thing I built into my company, I, I don't, frankly, I don't have the energy nor the desire to learn back-end systems for my company. I know what I want it to do. I don't want to build it. I don't want to build my website. Do I want to know how it's built and what it says and the impact? Yes. 20 years ago, I would have jumped in and learned the whole thing. But I have different things that I want to spend my limited brain power on, my attention, because I want a part-time job, basically, so I have a partner in my company. She's a, she's a subcontractor, but she's about 20 years younger than I am. 
project manager brought up with all of the technology and I use her, I bounce back and forth with her on ideas. And she will go figure things out because she's interested. And then she comes back and makes it better for my company. You're you're in a CEO role now. Yes. Love it. I exactly. Love it. Exactly. And if you didn't get laid off, you wouldn't be there. See, it all was meant to happen. Yes, I, love it. I know, I know. <laughs> Okay, my last question is about leadership style. And you describe your style as, quote, my style is fun, but no nonsense when it comes to truth telling to make a big change. So what I would love for you to explain to the listenership is no nonsense really is a level of assertive leadership. Assertive leadership often gets confused with aggressive leadership. So explain how no-nonsense can be delivered in an assertive way, with candor, with humor. How do you kind of deliver it, handle it, define it, help people see the difference? I'll give you a real-life example uh, of this. Um, I was working as the, the leader on a change project for the state of Tennessee. We were changing out the driver license system. Um, it was going to be changed from a 30-year-old green screen to, you know, obviously web-based, cloud-based, et cetera, et cetera. Over a weekend, everyone in the DMV there was freaking out because obviously they're the ones in the offices that have to face the customers. So they were resistant, obviously, at first. So... One of the things that I asked the leader of the group to do with me was partner with me to give them the real scoop to say, hey, you know, when we do a demo, this is what I like and this is what I don't like, but we're going to go with this thing that we have here and we're going to make it better. And here's the timeline. Not, do you like it? Because it doesn't matter if you like it. It's the future. We are doing this. And so when it came down to the very last weekend, the very last Friday, I had 65 change agents in all of the offices. And I said, do something to celebrate the end of the old system. And I got this from the CEO in the month a long time ago. Do a funeral kind of thing for the old way. I have never seen anything so funny in my life because I allowed them to be fun, have fun with it. And I said, we're going to have a contest. Whoever does the best job of saying goodbye to the old system. And I can't remember its name, but it had a name. They did Viking funerals, burned ships in the parking lot. They did eulogies. They did full funeral services with wake and a potluck. They did um, tombstones. It was amazing. And to me, that... That was my view, my version of assertive, but fun. I didn't, you know, I didn't pull punches. When they asked me, I told them the truth about everything, even if they weren't going to like it. Then that way they could deal with it before it hit them in the face. And within two months after that project changed or after we got the new system, the metrics, the success metrics on that project were already blown out of the water. So it just, it spoke highly of the, the leader that worked with me on it. Well, and you know what? Public speaking is right up there with change. People don't like it. 
But if you prepare them and give them a heart-centered leadership way and apply it to something, because people do view change as a loss. Yes. So that was brilliant. And, and it sounds like it was a lot of fun. And setting yourself up for metrics for the new system was success. Yep. And I'm sure over time, once everybody got their feet wet and got settled in, they were like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad we're not on that green screen. But the fear of the unknown, right? Mm-hmm. That's brilliant. I love it. Yep. Okay, I'm going to switch to my fab four. These are just four fun questions. We don't want you to think. We just okay. want to know what's sitting on the top of that beautiful, no-nonsense mind of yours. <laughs> okay. Okay, if I talked to your family and friends and I said, please describe Julie in one word, what would it be and why? Fun. <laughs> I, lo I love the word fun. And if that's how people are going to describe you, you're doing things right. <laughs> you're the one everybody wants to hang out with, right? I'm the party girl, yes. You're the party girl. <laughs> okay, second question. Share with us a book that you've read, and this can be at any age or juncture in your life, that was really impactful. What was the name of the book and the author, if you can remember, and why was it impactful? Oh, I would say the uh, Grimm's Fairy Tales. We had a whole encyclopedia of them, of fairy tales. And those were the things that when I was bored, when I was disappointed in myself, when I was having a bad day, I would go to those books and read about, I just love fantasy and fairy tales. So that kind of led into my English literature <laughs> degree. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? That, and even now, it helps you with thought, leadership, visionary work, transformational leadership. Like, it's all part of our, our leadership journey. And I love that. That was your safe haven when things weren't going well. And then look where it landed up taking you. That's beautiful. And there are no real boundaries in fairy tales. And there's no more encyclopedias either. When you right. say that, it brings me right back to our shelf in our living room and all the matching. We didn't have Google back then. We had to physically grab a book and, and look it up, right? Going to the You're library right. and, and learning that Dewey Decimal System. It's it's like when I fill out an online form and you have to scroll mm -hmm. for your birth year. Like, I feel like I'm like in a casino or on Wheel of Fortune. Like I'm oh, waiting and waiting man, and waiting to go back, right? Hey, I've got to go back three more than you. That's Okay. <laughs> You know what? The key is we can still go back. That's right. <laughs> okay, third question. Um, I'm granting you a wish, and you get to have dinner with anybody that you think is just a leader that you would love to sit and have dinner with. This leader could be living. They might have passed away. Who is the leader you're inviting to dinner, and what is the dinner conversation? Michelle Obama. And I would invite her because she she was the leader behind the leader and enabled her husband to be successful and helped him to achieve what we all needed in this country. So I appreciate the behind the scenes, the supportive leader role. And so I would talk to her about how can I be a better supportive role in my executive coaching. I just 
think she's just amazing. I I have her her book here. I gifted it to myself for Christmas, The Light We Carry. Yes. And I loved her first book. Oh, I, I did too. I devoured it on my holidays uh, when she wrote the first one. <laughs> she is just the epitome of heart-centered leadership. Yes, she, she is. She, and that would be a fun dinner conversation. And, you know, she's all about no sugarcoat neither. I love it. Yeah, that would, she's, people have mentioned her on the show before. She's, she's definitely uh, a popular, a popular female entrepreneur. And yeah, it's just fun to watch her grow and evolve to this day. Yeah, I'd like to have her be joined by Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Oprah. I think that would be a good trio. (laughs) Well, wouldn't that be a dinner? And maybe Meryl Streep. <laughs> that would be a dinner for sure. Okay, we're going to put that out there for you. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> so before we finish the show, I have a sentence that I ask all my my guests to finish. But I want to say thank you for reaching out and wanting to be on the podcast. We always love meeting and enjoying, you know, a great interview with other heart-centered leadership and you know, I'm sure you can look back now and be glad that you were laid off because your talents are oh, now yes. unleashed in every possible way. And you're the CEO now and you're calling the shot. So mm-hmm. thanks for sharing your integrity and 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 trust in this interview and just the transparency of of who who you are every day. Thank you. In in your own way. That's that's beautiful. So it's been fun spending time with you. It's been a great pleasure. Okay, so I'm going to have you finish this sentence. Heart-centered leadership is? Focused on others. Thanks so much for joining me today on Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. I hope you've enjoyed the show today and have learned some new tools for your leadership toolkit from our amazing heart-centered guest. If you like the show, Feel free to give us a rating and a review, and we always welcome your feedback anytime. Looking to master the art of heart? Head over to our website at debcrow.com and watch out for Deb's new book, The Heart-Centered Leadership Playbook, coming in September. 